Veterans Radio Hour with co-host Ranger Doug. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. your co-host, Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our fourth program in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, we'll be discussing what private individuals and private companies can do in support of the fight and in support of the, the fighters in Ukraine, remembering that we wish nothing ill on the citizens of either country. We hate the idea that this is happening now. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be joined by General Grange, who will be in a different mode to be interviewed instead of hosting as well as Dr. Brian Downing, an independent analyst, and Doug Wise, a senior CIA officer we've discussed and has been with us before. Okay, Doug, please introduce yourself. Give a little bit about your background. Ranger Doug, thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be on here with you, with General Grange, and certainly with Brian. It's an honor, and I'm glad this is a service being provided for our very deserving veterans. My background is, is fairly straightforward. I spent 20 years in career in the U.S. Army, the last five years of which was on loan to CIA, where I served the next 30 years as a clandestine ops officer. I retired in 2016 as the deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. So I had the opportunity to serve as a practitioner in the business of intelligence, to serve as a consumer in the business of intelligence as well. So. It's great to be here and offer my perspective on this uh, obviously very tragic topic. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. Uh, Brian, over to you, please. Uh, Brian Downing here. I uh, went into the Army at the age of 17 about 51 years ago. Three years ago, uh, three years later, I got out. I was a spent forward. I was an action jack buck sergeant for a while. I had a year of Vietnam under my belt, a Corvette Stingray, and the GI Bill. So I went to school and uh, Georgetown undergrad, PhD, University of Chicago, postdoc at Harvard Center for International Affairs with uh, Sam Huntington and all those people. Since then, I've been pretty much uh, just an independent analyst and very little institutional affiliation. Enlighten us as to what you think, since the war is underway and we're where we are today, what have the war aims of Russia and Mr. Putin become by this point? Over to you. Uh, I don't think Putin's war aims have changed. I still think he uh, believes that he can win this war as he drew it up uh, over the last several months. It's just a question of applying enough force, determination, and uh, and murderousness, really. I think uh, he believes he can crush Kiev, crush Kharkiv. Um, we may see an attack on Odessa in the next few days. Uh, the question, though, is, are his generals thinking anything different? Obviously, I can't really answer that with any certainty, but I think they must know that this war is not going very, very well at all, that their army could face serious uh, disintegrative effects in the next month or two, and uh, they may seek to, uh, you know, maybe take over control of the war from Putin. Well, we're not really going, not going to tell them they're doing this, but they're 
just not going to proceed as aggressively as possible. Maybe a hope more than an analysis. We've just discussed about the Russian war aims, and we don't think they've changed. I think that's true. I think also, though, that the war aims for this phase of the operation were set by the forces that uh, the Russians committed to this. And it's beginning to seem to me as if they did what Doug referred to Marshal Zhukov and his comments, what Marshal Zhukov said about how they got into Berlin so fast when asked by Dwight Eisenhower. He had a lot of tanks, and everyone wondered how come the tanks didn't get blown up. And Zhukov said, well, I sent the infantry in first, meaning, in other words, the infantry went in to step on the mines so the tanks could roll in and not be destroyed. And they did that. I have the feeling that what they sent in in this mix was to disturb the situation, clarify things, do the reconnaissance necessary. And they thought there could be a next next phase with more professional forces if they have them. But these forces have not really practiced that much. And if they're waiting, they're waiting for a change in the weather. So if they're going to come in and try to do something sweeping, they basically have to gain a lot in public opinion before this information war can be won. And that's one of the things that General Schoomaker used to emphasize to us years ago, that uh, in World War II, the war was the huge thing and the information was tiny because Ernie Pyle took two weeks to get a dispatch off. But today, the war itself can be defeated by the information environment if, if an adversary isn't capable. We'll have to see whether that plays out. But I do believe that General Mudd still has a hand to play in actuating the success or failure of uh, Mr. Putin's war aims. And it may, in fact, assist the Ukrainian war aims, which we'll discuss next. Thank you. Now let's take a pause for identification of our sponsors, and we'll return in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. On VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, 
then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Thank you. As we return from the commercial, this is our 19th program on Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is the fourth in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. And tonight we're talking about what private individuals and private companies can do in war. So the next question is, what are the war aims of Ukraine? And of course, President Zelensky, which in this case, I think we can also agree, as we did in the earlier part, that Putin and Russia's war aims are Mr. Putin's. In this case, I think we can say that the war aims are those that Mr. Zelensky and and Ukraine share because he's done a great job of not only welding public opinion in his country to his vision, or he's taken on the vision of his country and is now populating it and popularizing it, but the world is actually looking at this man as if he were a great leadership figure, and I'm fully in support of what he's doing. I don't like to see casualties on either side. I wish this wasn't happening, but we're having to comment on what's going on. So in this case, we're going to talk about the war aims of Ukraine, and uh, I would like to pass the floor to Brian. Over to you, Brian. Well, the Russians seem to be fighting a war looking for a decisive breakthrough and conquest. Uh, the Ukrainians have a much more intelligent and much more doable project of fighting a war of attrition. They just want to wear down the Russian invaders when they attack frontally and wear them down with attacks from the flanks, uh, guerrilla special forces, forces operation. The uh, estimates from Western intelligence organizations are that uh, the Russians are losing about 2,500 dead a week. And uh, in a month, that is 10,000 dead, maybe another 30,000 wounded. And at what point can the Russians just, uh, can they continue this? I don't think they can. Two, three months at the top, I think. Uh, so they're fighting a war of attrition. The Russians are fighting a uh, rather foolish war of conquest. It's going very well for the Ukrainians right now. Well, I think that's a great question. What are the war aims of Ukraine? I think Brian gave you a great answer. I don't think the war aims have changed significantly since uh, the last podcast. I believe that the you know the Ukraine is doing the David and Goliath thing and trying to create as much casualty confusion, uh, demoralization of the Russian. Uh, army as they can. And I think it's all designed to buy time. Buy time for Putin to change his mind, which is highly unlikely. 
but it's not likely at all. Uh, to buy time for the negotiations, to bear some fruit, to have the Russians quit the indiscriminate slaughter of, of the civilians and indiscriminate destruction of, of Ukrainian infrastructure and buildings and essentially their culture. And I, I doubt that those negotiations, I think they're a fantasy for those who believe in them, only because, uh, you know, you only negotiate when you lose and then the Russians believe they're winning. So uh, they're not negotiating good faith and they're Russians, so they're not going to negotiate in good faith anyway. And I think they're also trying to buy as much time as they can for either NATO to change their mind about getting more directly involved, which I think is unlikely, buy time for, you know, more material and military and lethal support to flow into, into the country uh, to be able to stabilize the civilian refugee population. So I think it's it's all a matter of just continuing to preserve the ability of Ukraine to survive long enough to, to build up a credible defense against what is a very large, I won't say very capable, but a very large, you know, armored and mechanized uh, military that has now occupied slowly and not very well additional territory in Ukraine. So back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Doug. Just one aside from what you mentioned. Uh, do you think that Mr. Zelensky actually has an idea that he is winning? Or in other words, is there a possibility he believes that his activities in not uh, negotiating or not proceeding to give in to negotiations has actually put Russia on a timetable where it will capitulate at some point and go home? That's a good question. Um, you know, trying to call into Putin's mind or trying to call into Zelensky's mind is difficult. Putin impossible. Zelensky, it, it's, it's a little bit easier, I imagine. But to answer your question, it's possible that Zelensky could believe that if everything comes to pass and, and all the peace parts kind of fit together in time to save what you and I know is half of Ukraine. I suppose in that sense, you know, Zelensky could believe that, uh, you know, he might prevail. I think it's also important to really figure out what do you mean by win, because, you know, the definition is in the eye of the beholder. And so is totally expelling all of the Russian armies from Ukraine sovereign territory and killing every Russian soldier in the process. Is that win? I, I think that meets one definition of win is getting them to quit slaughtering civilians and trying to destroy the Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian culture and have them stop where they are now, if that, that could be a win if you define it that and it could be an acceptable outcome at this point, just on a humanistic basis. And so that that's the hard part about trying to determine and, and assess whether Ukrainian or Russian policymakers believe they're winning, prevailing, or whatever term you want to use. Because it all turns on, turns on that definition. And so a tough question to answer, but a great question nonetheless. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, I was just touched by the fact that uh, it appeared the Russian demands had changed and gotten more more difficult to satisfy. And that's where in negotiations uh, you, you kind of have to know the negotiating style of, of the people involved. And we're used to saying, you know, uh, I'd like 25 bucks, and you say can. And I say, would you believe 20? And you say 15, and we get a sale. These guys, 
I think, are in a completely different set of calculus. So we'll just have to see what happens. Anyway, Doug, thank you very much. We're going to go to our next question. What do we think can be done by partners and allies, including NATO, the EU, the U.S., etc., considering whole of nation? And in this case, I'll pass the floor back to Doug. Thanks, uh, Randy, Doug. I think it's an important question. I think the the red line from uh, our president and from NATO are pretty clear. None of the countries are going to, nor do any of these countries, our allies, want direct conflict with the Russian military, principally because of the tremendous potential for escalation. And that's coded speak for the use of either theater or strategic nuclear weapons. I think that uh, the use of strategic nuclear weapons would probably be less probable, but I I assure you that uh, Vladimir Putin is more than more than capable and more than willing to use theater nuclear weapons if it satisfies his his war aims, both in Ukraine and and in in Europe. Quite frankly, um, I think uh, you know where our allies are going to put their emphasis now is in containment. I think our allies are going to put their emphasis in you know providing appropriate military support in our United States of America just, you know, passed significant legislation offering up uh, not only financial and economic support to Ukraine, but also military support as well. And uh, those weapon systems will have a big impact. As as Brian indicated, it's going to be, you know, the Ukrainians fighting an asymmetric war against the greatest weakness of the Russian military. And then, uh, obviously, the humanitarian crisis, the, uh, our allies are going to bear that burden uniquely. Uh, yes, they will probably, you know, absorb a number of Ukrainian refugees as we should to add to our already wonderful Ukrainian immigrant population here in, in America. But the reality is it's going to be millions of displaced persons, millions of, you know, uh, refugees needing everything from food, water, jobs, finance, medical treatment. You know, futures, you know, it's not just individuals, but it's also families as well. So, tremendous amount of impact that that's going to have in, in the region. And it's going to concomitant and collateral economic impacts as well. So, I think our allies are going to have uh, a big burden to bear, even if there's a cessation of hostilities from negotiations, which I doubt because uh, the Russians are not negotiating in good faith. When uh, you're prevailing and they believe they are, you, know, you don't negotiate. So our allies are going to be, you know, providing support. They're going to be taking care of these new uh, refugees and immigrants into their own country. And, and our job as, in the United States of America would be to help our allies do all of that as well. So, Ranger Doug, back to you. Same question over to Brian. Well, I think our allies and partners can continue with the sanctions, uh, continue with weaponry. We've seen that the British are sending in their Star Street system and they're sending in their N-laws. These are taking the toll out in the war of attrition that the Ukraine is fighting. Uh, They can continue a moral international climate of condemnation against Russia that uh, it's going to be very hard for them to get out of for years to come. Uh, perhaps they can, through trade and dialogue and negotiations, nudge China into uh, 
putting pressure on Putin and maybe some generals in Moscow to uh, kind of curtail this thing. Uh, nobody's going to win this from the Russian perspective. It is damaging China's image. Uh, if the Russian military goes into crisis in a few years, it's going to be very hard to get in a few months, I mean. It's going to be very hard to get out of, and China wants a very powerful Russia on its side. If it does not have a powerful aligned party power in uh, Moscow, China is uh, a regional power, an obnoxious, belligerent regional power. It really needs someone across that whole landmass on its side to be the global power it wants to be. Uh, so, yeah, getting China involved here is an important goal. Back to you, Doug. Thank you. Well, back to me. Uh, I agree with everything you all have said, and I believe that what we're possibly seeing here is, as I've said earlier, uh, a situation where something is lurking out there that we haven't yet to see, but the fact is, can, can Mr. Putin actually put it in play and will it work? If he's counting on some kind of Hail Mary, that may not be in the Russian Orthodox lexicon. I think it's a Catholic thing. But anyway, on the other hand, I'm struck by the fact that I believe that China and Russia have been trying to put together an alliance that would work, and they're trying to include other countries with them, such as North Korea, India, Pakistan, and Iran. And thus doing that, they would effectively knit up uh, the, 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 the eastern two-thirds of Eurasia, for the most part, and limit the ability of anyone else to get anything done across that landmass, which is a big problem for us. It, it, it takes away the idea of choke points and makes that whole area, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a choking mass, if you will. Uh, they could stifle pretty much the world economy. They could develop their own banking systems. They've got plenty of resources, not that they really want to uh, get by without the rest of the world being involved, but through the Chinese Belt and Road system, they will have built bridges to innumerable numbers of countries through their Belt and Road system, and they will have also been able to gain access and control and horizontally and vertically integrate into other countries through traditional espionage methods, which we're all familiar with. So it, it doesn't portray a very good picture. It's just interesting that if Russia fails in this effort, that whole idea of putting together the consortium I've described may in fact come apart and we'll see something else happen as a result. So now we're going to pause again for a commercial. Thank you very much. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. Uh, 
If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifv.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifv.org, and click on VDAC. Welcome back. Here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Your little boy ain't gonna die. Your little boy gonna... Welcome back from the commercial. This is our 19th program on Veterans Radio R2.0. The topic for tonight is, what is it that private individuals and private companies can do in war? So now let's turn to that question, and that allows us to return to Brian. Brian, would you take that one first? Well, I think what uh, American citizens can do is counter all this nonsense we're seeing online and all too often from uh, many of our politicians. There seems to be something in the American political system now that says that if uh, the president says something, you have to counter it with uh, a completely opposite narrative. And you're seeing members of Congress saying respectable things about the Russian offensive, which I think is reprehensible, and I think Americans need to point that out. Uh, can American private businesses do more? I suspect they can do more with hacking, jamming, uh, unmasking Russian military communication channels, disrupting that. They may be doing that already. I mean, we've heard of this organization called Anonymous. And uh, the communication system in the Russian military seems to be very, very poor. I'm seeing that Russian pilots are using commercially available GPS systems, and I think there are people in their basements who can hack into those things. Um, so I, I think the war of uh, the cyber warfare, which I think at the outset of this conflict we thought the Russians would excel at, well, uh, somebody's knocking them off the grid, and let's keep it up. Well, I'd also like to ask you what you think might be the role of the private military companies that we saw become so prevalent in uh, the Afghan and the Iraq war. what what? How can they be employed in this type of operation? Over to you again. Well, it is possible that uh, more sophisticated tweaking of Turkish drones could be done by the American uh, military sector. Um, better communication systems with Ukrainians. Uh, and as I said, better jamming of the Russian system. Great. And then Doug, over to you. Same question. Well, thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, I just want to build on what I thought was a good comment by Brian in that, uh, you know, if we expect NATO to be unified, then America needs to be unified as well. We don't need the far right, you know, raising their hands and, and applauding Russian military successes and wishing, you know, Vladimir Putin, 
you know, success in rationalizing his invasion of Ukraine. Unhelpful, in my view. Uh, I believe it is germane to your, to your question about what can private contractors do, what can, you know, the private sector do. I believe that one, an obvious one, quit doing business with Russia. Unlike the Cook brothers, unlike others, uh, it'd be helpful if American companies in the face of American implied sanctions attempting to put pressure economically on the Russian Federation. It's unhelpful that American companies are continuing to profit from the slaughter and from the tragedy created by the Russians in Ukraine. The American people should be outraged that there are American companies that are making money off of the genocide in Ukraine. It's just despicable. And I can't believe that America and the American people would really, would just stand by and not do anything about that. I think less uh, related to to that topic, I think the private companies will end up providing train, training and assistance right now, I would imagine, to Ukrainians, whether that's happening on Ukrainian soil or on NATO soil, I, I, I don't know. But it's really where expertise lies. They're experts at the weapon system. And going back to a comment that uh, you made, Ranger Doug, which was related to the aircraft, you know, most of these weapon systems are not in the Ukrainian inventory, and so they will require training. And who's best to train and who can, actually, in light of NATO's red line of not wanting to have NATO soldiers going toe-to-toe with the Russian military, the obvious, you know, default at that point becomes private contractors that are going to do that very risky business because, as we've seen, the Russians are now striking from afar, you know, the far west of Ukraine, so there is no real safe territory in Ukraine anymore because the Russians are quite comprehensively, even if not very effectively, targeting. I think another obvious contribution that the, the private sector can make global private sector to make is in the humanitarian response. Uh, the amount of money, the amount of expertise, the amount of people, the amount of material, the amount of equipment, the amount of supplies that will be required to address this just incredible tragedy, uh, I think, can only come from the private sector. Governments can help to set the conditions. Governments can help to manage government can remove red tape and obstacles, but in the end, it's probably the private sector that's going to end up uh, saving lives and taking care of this and addressing this humanitarian issue. And just one final thing, obviously, in the context of your question, Ranger Doug, about, you know, the private security companies and what they can do, I think there will be security required uh, to the infrastructure that is created to do the humanitarian affairs. Uh, And so I think that's a very legitimate and very necessary, and it's going to be a very helpful role that these private security companies uh, can play. And I might also say that those same companies that don't necessarily provide, you know, physical security, but they also have expertise that can help to extract and to evacuate, you know, persons at risk uh, from inside Ukraine and bring them to safe haven. And to protect in into protected territory. So, back to you, Ranger Depp. 
Thank you, Doug. And uh, to wrap up this segment, our last question was about private companies and private citizens. I would like to say that, uh, as we saw in Afghanistan and in uh, the war in Iraq, I'm sure that this will entrepreneurialize in, in a number of directions, such things that have been mentioned by participants as medical care, internet and internet security, training, weapon equipment, and uh, even, for instance, if these fighter planes were be, uh, would be provided, uh, there would have to be a training effort. And it reminds me that uh, uh, Ukraine has opened up the issue of allowing uh, private individuals to come into the country and join efforts that are either underway before they arrive or are developing in-country and it takes us all the way back to one of our last uh, experiences with this, which was in World War II, when uh, China was being overrun by the Japanese. Uh, the United States and China concluded a deal in about 1936 where they uh, formed an outfit called CAMCO, the Chinese Aircraft Manufacturing, Chinese American Aircraft Manufacturing Company, which sponsored the entree of a number of uh, fighter and and uh, transport and bomber pilots, plus all the maintenance people and such who were able to leave their service, go out under contract into China, and become members of what became known as the American Volunteer Group, otherwise known as the Flying Tigers, who were very successful for a number of years. Some of those people became aces while fighting in that environment, and they were allowed to transport their victories into their uh, extended careers in their services. One of the famous ones was... Uh, Gregory Pappy Boyington, who was a Marine who detached from the Marines to go fight there and then came back, joined the Marines and went on to not only head the Black Sheep Squadron, but become famous as a pro wrestler and an all-around uh, interesting person and was captured in uh, several TV shows we all know and love. Another was a guy by the name of David L. Tex Hill, who knocked down about 10 Japanese uh, in that fight and then went on to become a, a leader in a number of theaters as well. Uh, I think we're going to see something like that develop here as well. And I'm aware that right now there are a number of people that I know that are migrating toward that area to take jobs with companies that have already said they've got openings for people as trainers and shooters and medics and everything else. So like our participants have said, there's probably a lot of entrepreneurial spirit loose right now. We'll have to see how far that goes. Also, though, uh, just as one of our panelists said, uh, it would be a good idea to cease supporting the combatant, Russia, and at the same time think about the bigger issue, which is the uh, elephant in the tent, uh, that being uh, Russia's partner to the south, headed by a man named Xi Jinping. It would be a good idea to start considering alternatives for production of goods and services and other things concerning that company, because a country, I should say, because that country, as it's done in the past, is using the money that we and others spend to provision its economy to turn that money into a weapon against us and we'll suffer uh, untold losses if we can't turn this thing around. And they're deeply integrated in our country now. We need to reduce that integration by reducing the amount of money we send to them and return certain production aspects and other things to our own country. So that concludes this round, and therefore we'll move into the final question, which is once again, as we did last time. What do you think we can look forward to in the coming weeks, given the fight we have and the topic we've discussed tonight? And I would like to pass the, the floor over to Brian for his comments. Well, first, I'd like to add on something. Uh, oddly, I flew to Vietnam on Flying Tiger Airlines, which was a commercial outfit set up by 
veterans of the World War II out there. And uh, my dad growing up was uh, in Happy Point and blah, 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 she's squadron. Uh, what do we have to look forward to? I think we have to look forward to continued Russian casualties, uh, demoralization in the ranks. They are, the Russian army is stalemated. They are stuck. That's very bad for morale. Soldiers want to be moving, doing something, seeing some sign of progress. Uh, there's probably something especially demoralizing about this kind of war. Imagine you're in an armor unit and you're convoying or you're bivouacked in some field and you know, you're there and you're T90 and you have all this reactive armor and all these uh, guys around you. And then, bam, the tank next to you gets a turret blown off by a drone you never saw or by a javelin fired by some guy a mile and a half away. That has got to be especially demoralizing to troops. And I think we're going to see that in the next uh, few weeks. Well, Brian, I, I want to just amplify what you've said and pass it back to you for some thoughts on your part. I think we've already seen some very strange things happen. There's not only been a large number of tanks that have been destroyed or damaged beyond repair, but there have been quite a number of fighting vehicles, including tanks, that have been abandoned by people who yeah. apparently have deserted and gone over to the Ukrainian side. And this takes on aspects of a comment you made last week where you thought, and it was a brilliant idea— that uh, it would be a good idea to offer a bounty for, you know, ceasing fighting and, and just simply defecting, in a sense. Care to amplify on that a bit? Well, sure. There is a program for Russian pilots, and uh, decoys and helicopters. I'm not aware of anything like that. But uh, a Russian soldier offered $20,000. That might be over a million rubles today. Um, and you get a free citizenship out in the EU or somewhere in the United States, perhaps. That's got to be a pretty powerful incentive for some of these young people who see no real future back at home. Uh, they see their country disintegrating. They see their country uh, reverting to a Brezhnevian, if not a Stalinist, social system. And I think, yeah, those incentives uh, could be very attractive. With the whole, uh, you know, a few hundred a day, a few hundred a week, maybe, that's got to cause trouble, and it's going to cause trouble for the NCOs and the lieutenants because they have to be looking around, not just dealing with the operational things. They have to wonder who, who's, who's looking a little spirited, who's, uh, who's going to go over the hill if they have that expression in Russian. I think it could seriously aggravate the troubles that are continuing in the Russian army. Thank you, Brian. I've seen numbers approaching about 250 tanks have been abandoned, and that's incredible. Uh, we're in terrain where you know the battles of uh, Kharkov and Kursk were fought in the Second World War, where at Kursk, for example, not far from here, uh, 7,000 tanks went at it, and uh, the, the, the Russians were actually driving their first quality T-34 tanks in twos and threes up onto the German Tigers because even the T-34, as powerful as it was, couldn't stop the Tiger. Uh, here we're seeing people walking away from tanks that would laugh at the Tiger. These, these Russian tanks are very good, but they're also very small, very cramped, and uh, unfortunately for the Russians, but fortunately for the Ukrainians, uh, all of these new weapons and their new capabilities, whether it be precision sights or digital communications, they, they take some kind of fusion to make them effective, and that's what they appear to lack. So 
to me, that's a it's a very interesting thing to watch and, and be aware of moving into the future. Doug, over to you. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, a couple thoughts in terms of what we're going to see. I think we're going to see continued courage and resilience and determination on the part of the Ukrainian military and part of the Ukrainian civilian defense organizations. Uh, and I believe that uh, that's a byproduct of the inspirational leadership of their Churchillian-like leader, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, and it also is a byproduct of, as Brian indicated, the you know the poor performance of the Russian military. Uh, and I agree with with Brian. I think the uh, the disintegration of discipline and and morale, I think, is is very obvious. Whether the numbers of destroyed tanks and abandoned vehicles is accurate or not remains to be seen, and perhaps we'll never know. But I think the it's very clear that the the performance of the Russian military, as has been analyzed by literally everybody in the world, has been to say the Russians have been abysmal on the battlefield uh, would be probably giving them more credit than is, than is due. I would also argue that as the Russians anticipate occupation, these forces that are misorganized, badly led, badly soldiered, and badly equipped are going to be the occupation army of Russia, of, of Russia in Ukraine. And having a an army that is ill-disciplined with really bad morale is not going to be good for the Ukrainian people in terms of counterinsurgency because, as I think all of our listeners know, that's a tough fight. That is a very tough fight. And you need discipline. You need good morale. You need tight control. You need professionalism. None of that exists in the Russian military. I can't imagine how badly this Russian army is going to be as an occupation counterinsurgency force when they face the full weight of Ukrainian guerrilla warfare and insurgent warfare. I, I think it's just going to be really bad. I think to build on something that uh, Brian also said that I, I'd never thought of, of how important is Russia in terms of surviving this for Chinese foreign policy objectives. Uh, I think in the end, what we're going to see is China taking every opportunity to exploit everything that comes out of this tragedy, from from military intelligence to economic, political. The Chinese will very adroitly exploit all of this. And to Brian's point, do they want Russia to fail? No, but they certainly want Russia to be damaged and have their capabilities minimized because the Chinese are going to want to be able to influence Russian behavior as much as they want to influence our own behavior and that of the Western countries as well as Asian countries, to say the least. So anyway, I think we're going to be in for, you know, significant numbers of human innocent, human casualties, innocent loss of life. Again, you know, the, the Russians don't have the moral fabric. They don't have the moral compass. They don't have the core values that, uh, that we would expect. You know, they're not adherent to the Geneva Convention. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they are not even a signatory to it. And it doesn't really matter because they're not behaving as if they are. 
So we're going to see tragedy. We're going to see slaughter. We're going to see genocide. We're going to see destruction. And yet out of that mess, we're going to see just some incredible inspirational response and behavior by the Ukrainian people, whether they're safe havening in the basement of a building, whether they're fighting on the front lines, whether they're out in the West trying to help prepare for what might come after the Russians try to take Kiev. Uh, there's no end of inspiration that comes from watching these just extraordinary people with their passion for freedom and their resilience and their determination. It's just stunning in, in its quality and in its magnitude. It's just amazing to me. You don't, we haven't seen that anywhere. So if there's any good news, perhaps maybe that's the good news. But the bad news will unfortunately be much greater in magnitude and, and its amount of, of tragedy, I guess I should say. So back to you, Ranger Doug. I'd just like to say that, uh, as as the panel has discussed, uh, the one thing that really is missing in this is that the Russian people could contribute a lot to the world, but because of what they've been forced to do, that, that contribution is missing. As well, it seemed at first to perhaps invigorate the Chinese. It seemed as if the Chinese and the Russians actually had something they cooked up, but the Russians delayed their attack until after the Olympics. They ran into the mud. They now have other problems, and it appears that while the Russians have this wonderful machine that produces armaments and other things that are very high quality, because they don't have a system that can exploit that, they produce them and sell them to others at reduced prices, or the Chinese copy them and sell them to others. And uh, we're watching the Russians appear to flub an opportunity. If there is some other feature coming, uh, it's going to happen at a time when the world basically may have even lost interest in what's going on, and it may not be apparent they've done so well. There are several people out there in the pundit world who say that they have some brilliant strategy underway, and they're actually encircling everything, getting ready to strike, and all they're waiting for is everything to be in preparation, and then they will go. Well, that may happen, but uh, I'm, I'm still sitting on the fence wondering what may be happening that we're not seeing but we may be seeing all that is available, and that's why they're doing what they're doing. But don't mistake the fact for the Chinese operating the same way. Unlike the Russians, the Chinese are very introspective. They have systems on systems that take apart everything they do, and they analyze it. They break it down. If someone doesn't meet standards, they're immediately uh, attended to, punished if they have to be. And the punishments are quite severe. They're still dealing in the same situation that the Russians and the Chinese have in the past. They they go after people for not doing their jobs, and they also go after people for not towing the party line. So China is able to entrepreneurialize its military forces much better than they have in the past, much better than they did during the Korean War, for example, the last time we actually fought them. We cannot bank on the fact that they will operate anything like they did during the Korean War, which uh, had, you know, uh, um, for every three uh, Chinese soldiers, there reportedly were one to two weapons, and they waited for people to be killed to be able to pick up weapons and continue fighting. And many of the people in the first ranks of the Chinese attacking were actually nationalist soldiers who'd been captured and placed in the front ranks to go ahead and make their way through the lines. And if they lived, fine. But if they were killed, it left the actual adherence to the Chinese regime to follow them and exploit the situation. So we have to be aware of things like that that may be coming. I would like then to just turn the floor back to the gentleman to give a final comment, and then we'll close. And I would like to then pass uh, the floor to Brian first. Well, I'd just like to say that uh, I feel privileged to live in a time of seeing such unity and courage from the Ukrainian people. It is truly a marvelous thing. It 
reminds me of what my parents told me about World War II, where uh, the American people were united uh, in winning the war, back the attack. Uh, it is just a, a very warming, emotional thing to see this. And uh, I, I truly feel honored to live in this time. Back to you, Doug. Thank you, Brian. Doug, over to you. Uh, yeah, my final comment is, uh, is very, very similar to, to Brian's, which is, you know, it's just uh, it's just remarkable to see the unity that has come out of NATO. Much ironically, from a Putin standpoint, NATO is now more resolute and stronger, more unified than it ever was. Uh, uh, free conflict, to say the least. Now we in, in America need to do our part to, to kind of mirror that and become unified and, and have one voice and have one, one care. And, I, and we're certainly capable of that, as Brian indicated from his parents. Uh, you know, every American was committed to winning World War II without question. There was no debate. And so we need to be in that same mode right about now. And then my final thought is, as I've said previously on, on other episodes, it's an honor and a privilege to, to support uh, the Veterans Radio Hour. Uh, you know, we have our listeners are just extraordinary Americans in their own right and heroes in, in, by any measure. Uh, and so I think this is great that, you know, General Grange, you and the staff of, of, of the Radio Hour, you know, volunteer their time to, to do this on behalf of the veterans. And, providing them an opportunity to become more informed and and be better citizens, uh, if you will. So thank you very much uh, for me as a veteran, uh, because I, I enjoy and benefit from this as, as well. So back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Doug, and, and great remarks by both of you. General, over to you for your concluding remarks. Sure. Thanks, Ranger Doug. Our colleagues on the show tonight brought up some great points on, on what you just reviewed. And so I want to focus my, my comments uh, initially on the use of private companies, private organizations, both for-profit and non-profit. Now, I was, when I was in the military, uh, I, di- I didn't have a real feel for this because when I came in, we had in our, our army a very robust logistics chain. Our support capability organizations took care of just about everything. When Desert Storm, we started to get involved with more private companies, as I recall now, it may have been earlier, but as I recall, than we had in the past, at least the operations that I was on, uh, to include Vietnam. And Desert Storm, we saw a little bit of it, but it really, really, I thought, picked up on Bosnia-Herzegovina and in Kosovo from my experiences, it really picked up. In other words, I, I had the opportunity at that time to command the Big Red One, the 1st Infantry Division, duty first. And in that organization, when we were in Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, names like Brown Root and, and uh, Halliburton and others uh, were everywhere. Uh, they handled the food, the mess halls, mail for soldiers, the water supply, latrines, movement of ammunition and equipment, hiring and vetting uh, local nationals to do work on the camps. Uh, you could, they did so much that you had to have a representative to, from the uh, 
the organizations, or at least the major organization, in, almost embedded on your staff. They were critical to accomplishment of the mission. You know, the higher rank you get in the military, the more logistics, the tail that wags the dog, really uh, are mission essential. They either make the mission or they break the mission. And you start thinking of logistics a lot more than, you know, slapping gun leather. Uh, It's not as exciting, but without it, you, you don't succeed. So these companies were essential because the military went from, what, 18 in the Army, 18 to 10 divisions after Desert Storm. A lot of logistics was cut out. So I changed my, my attitude about private companies and had a lot of respect for them. Um, I didn't like everything they did, but overall I had a lot of respect for them. And in fact, I knew a lot of the, a lot of the leadership in those civilian organizations because I used to wear uniforms. Brigade engineer officer when I was a tank commander in uh, Korea uh, ran uh, the show in uh, in Bosnia Herzegovina. So you had to get along with them, and they had to get along with you, and they were essential to mission success. When I when I retired from the military, I did some nonprofit work in Kurdistan, you know, northern Iraq around Mosul during the ISIS occupation and fighting. Uh, working with displaced Christians and Hazari tribes and, and others that Kurds, uh, mainly on the medical side, uh, uh, tra- trauma type work uh, with the uh, with equipment and training. And in that, if you didn't have private companies, they were handling all the displaced personnel, DPs, and others uh, do the war efforts. The military may have been securing camps. But the running of all those camps are international organizations, really good ones, and I got to know a lot of the a lot of the uh, staff on those on those companies and, and the, the work they did. Uh, and then, of course, many people on this call remember in a, in Iraq, uh, in a, in Afghanistan, other than the Kurdistan thing of ISIS, you know, Iraq before that, and of course Afghanistan for 20 years. They know how contractors operated, and I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that there were probably more contractors lost in Afghanistan, I heard this several times, than GI. And if that's wrong, I hope someone on the show corrects me, but I know the number's up there. And so I did uh, nonprofit work in Iraq, and I did for-profit work in in Afghanistan, uh, working for a couple primes, uh, contract companies. So I uh, I look at problem sets now, like what's happening in Ukraine, with through the lenses of government organizations, for-profit organizations, and non-profit organizations. And I think they're key to success, actually. Now, there's a lot of fraud, black marketing, inefficiencies in some of the international non-government organizations. There's no doubt about it. I've seen it, uh, and I've heard about it other than what I've seen as well to reinforce my perceptions. There's a lot. And um, uh, it has to be dealt with, but they're still still out there doing things. But a lot of the private organizations fill in the gaps of inefficiency. So as an example, 
the amount of of food uh, or medical supplies or even cash that goes into Afghanistan now, the percentage that actually gets to the people in need is so minor, the waste is unbelievable. And from nonprofit perspectives, that is not following donors' intent. A donor provides money to some of these organizations in order to deliver and have effects. And if only 10% gets to the people in need and 90% is wasted, something's wrong. And so what's happening is that a lot of countries are actually asking, or even organizations that want to give, or people, individual private citizens that want to give, they're asking private companies to actually perform some of these tasks because they, they're losing trust in some of the international organizations. And that's happening right now already in Ukraine. And it's happened quite a bit in Afghanistan. So I, I get a feel for why they're needed. And people want results. They want return on investment. And sometimes uh, the private companies, the ones they go to to make it happen. So Ranger Doug, I'll stop there, stop right there for now in case there's some other questions. But I think they're essential and I think that our government ought to use nonprofits and for-profit organizations in conflict more than we do because it's key to a whole-of-nation approach to help win the war yourself or help an ally or whoever you're supporting to, to win. They're, they're a key to that whole-of-nation uh, approach to, uh, to war fighting. Over to you, Doug. Thanks, General. You know, when you and I were working on the QDR back in the day, an uh, issue that came up of low density, high demand, and since then we've seen, and I know you're expert in the development of information operations, so things like cyber, uh, hacking, uh, IT support, training, weapon provision, uh, and so forth also could be provided by private companies, probably for-profit companies, but there may be some nonprofits as well. What are your thoughts on that? No, it's a, it's a great point. And it does affect readiness, the QDR, all the different readiness reports. You know, I was uh, at OD DesOps, which is uh, current operations, uh, readiness, uh, and mobilization, that shop. And the actual, the, the how you insert private company work into an organization is critical. Let me give you an example. In the 1st Infantry Division, just one of many. The maintenance on a gun turret on an Apache aircraft is contracted out to civilian mechanics, very advanced mechanics, because the Army, I don't remember if they did away with that MOS or it was just, again, uh, it's a high demand in regards to a critical warfighting piece of equipment, uh, but it's low density. And we didn't, we, didn't, uh, we didn't have it. We had it contracted out. And I remember we were getting ready to go on several deployments, and in the readiness brief, and I'm told, well, some of these mechanics may not deploy. So what do you mean they're not going to deploy? Uh, well, they're civilians. They're, they're, not, they're not in the uniform. Well, why would we hire people on a contract when we don't know they're going to deploy? And it, it's, it's uh, I'm not knocking that they were contractors. I'm knocking, I'm knocking that we didn't contract them 
with the conditions that they would deploy to war. So it is a readiness issue if it's not done right. So it's not just carte blanche that, okay, we'll just have contractors fill that. It has to be done in the right way so you can meet your readiness and warfighter requirements. So what you brought up is a, is a terrific point on the, on the use of contractors. Over to you, Doug. Yeah, and it's, it, it's my thought that really this is the safest way to provide necessary low-density but high-demand munitions, weapons, communication equipment, and so forth. Plus, it would be my thought that the company, particular companies for sure, have an ability to provide the things that are going to be culturally attuned. In other words, immediate use of the right language, the right kind of weapon, and so forth. We're not going to sit here and try to ship them. Uh, an M16 with, with 5.56 ammo, that's crazy. They need to be able to pick up anything they find on the battlefield and use it. If it's ammo, it's got to go right in the gun and get shot back at the people they capture it from. So in other words, we're talking 5.45 for AKMSs, uh, 7.62 uh, by 39 for the larger weapons, and we've even got some U.S. M4 type weapons that will shoot that ammo. So there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of companies to provide some very clever solutions. But the main thing is going to be can the uh, Ukrainians grasp how to use it and employ it effectively. This idea of the airplane. You don't just send a fighter airplane anymore like World War II where some guy climbs in and flies it away. He depends on a tanker. He depends or she depends on something that will vector him or her to the right location. The bomb that's dropped may be picked up by some other sensor and, and, and pinpointed to a target uh, you know, four, four feet wide in a circular error probable. In other words, a circle four feet wide is where that bomb went. Without that guidance, that bomb goes dumb and it may land a mile away. We'll get back to the standard in World War II, just dropping bombs in the general area of a target and hoping a few hit. We can't do that anymore because you generate so many civilian casualties. So I think you're dead on the money. Any further thoughts on this subject, General? Sure. I like to. I want to. I want to just pick up on what you just said. So when a GI gets out of the military from any of the services, especially with a specialized low-density, high-demand MOS, like you just mentioned. There's some great job opportunities out there, and your pay, like, doubles from what you're getting in the military at least. So a lot of GIs transition to those same type of jobs, and they end up doing some of the same kind of work they did in uniform but as contractors. Now, that's a good thing. That's a good thing in many cases. So Remember when these when these organizations provide contract contract work to the military, you're not paying the military's not paying anymore for uh, their care care and feeding and, and and insurance and all kinds of other requirements. Just like in a regular company, I mean, they the military's passed that cost on to the contractor. So it actually is a good thing for the military for cost savings as long as they're integrated properly for warfighting. So <clears throat> right now, the military cannot do their mission without it. You mentioned cyber. You mentioned information operations. Uh, think of linguists. Linguists with I.O. Uh, linguists for civil affairs. Uh, those kind of uh, jobs, the military's T.O.N.E. does not provide a robust enough capability. And in today's world, some of those those soft SOFT type uh, jobs skills, uh, the military can't man the force with those. 
So they have to almost go into the civilian community to fill the ranks on that need. And as cyber and information operations and uh, some of the irregular warfare type requirements uh, are more prevalent today, you might say, than the past because of the speed of communications and, 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 and how the world is smaller and tied together tighter because of the internet and everything else. So they have to be done in most cases by a lot of contractors. Over to you, Doug. Roger. And I think uh, one of the things that companies afford us the opportunity to do, too, is to create a deniability. Whatever is done cannot have identity to a country necessarily. And if you're training in sophisticated equipment from, say, an unmanned aerial system or a drone, as we call them, or a Stinger kind of anti-aircraft missile, let alone an airplane, you've got to have a place where you can actually field it, train it, harm it, and then get it ready to go, but then move it into country where it can be used. I don't know as our training can be done within Ukraine because that subjects the trainers and the suppliers to damage from Russian soft, and they may even be detected if they're in other countries. So people would have to give serious thought to what third country could you train this stuff in and then ship it into the area quickly so it can be used. And that means whatever you start to do has to be available to the force that's going to fight with it within a week or two, or it may be too late. Would you, would you uh, agree with that and care to expand a little bit on that comment? Over. Sure. You know, who knows? We might be doing that, right? Uh, I hope so. And we may have done it in preparation as well. If we were squared away, that would be the case. I feel that we'd probably do a little of it. If you look at what, what, how some of our adversaries, like take Putin, how he uses the Wagner Group, you know, right? that's a good example of what you just said. He uses that group, which many have said is like a Blackwater uh, type or a private security company, but does a lot of logistics work. And it started out doing other, Wagner Group started doing other things besides combat operations. But Putin can use those guys that has, has used that company to do a lot of his dirty work with plausible denial. And uh, it's, actually a pretty smart technique in today's world because of disinformation that he applies with it. Uh, you know, Wagner Group's very close to him. Um, they're, they're the CEO and, and, and uh, Putin are, are buddies. Um, so he uses it that way, and so does some other countries. So we usually do it, you know, as you know, in, in uh, terms of foreign internal defense and, and unconventional warfare, et cetera. But he's actually taken an overt organization and applied it in many places in Africa, Middle East, Europe, uh, East, especially Central Eastern Europe, uh, very effectively. And so you can see how he's used contractors in a little different way. Um, we have used them mainly for security reasons when it comes to the use of genetic use. Um, not almost like a guerrilla force that's, you know, tied to his reporting chain. So uh, your, your comment on that is right on, and I, and I believe we're going to see more and more of that on the, on the years ahead. Over to you, Ranger Doug. Let's take a break and pause for a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. Attention. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you're going to drive, why not drive for the best? 
Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Roses are red, violets are blue. You want your disability claim? Get VDAC. End of story. Go to nifv.org. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Welcome back from the commercial. This is the fourth in our series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, we've discussed what private individuals and private companies can, should, and may be doing. Uh, now, I'd like to uh, invite General Grange's closing comments. Thank you, Ranger Doug. And uh, just just a, a summary of tonight's program, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to just throw a few things out there for thought. So, and I tie into with many of our guests what, what, they, what they hit on when they were participating tonight. So, if you really look at what's going on there, what, where, what are the weaknesses? I'm going to start that way. What are the weaknesses of uh, the Russian military, the Ukrainian military, and the United States right now tied into NATO, tied into what we do as a superpower? So if you look at the, if you look at the Russians, they're having tremendous problems with their, one, their supply lines, their logistics. And I, I made my made comments earlier about uh, the tail wags the dog. And when you're talking about fuel, when you're talking about ammunition, um, you talk about feeding and, and care of wounded and that type of thing. Since Putin didn't do a blitzkrieg uh, like the Germans did in, towards France in World War II, they got bogged down. They got bogged down and, and built up areas for sure and key choke points, et cetera. And they got bogged down because they didn't understand commander's intent. Uh, I think many of them didn't understand why they were there to include some of the junior commanders. And so when that happens, there's always a lack of initiative. And of course, they don't really have an NCO Corps. So they already started out with a deficit, but not having an NCO Corps like like we do. So that's a bit of a problem. Now, Ukraine has the same issues with the NCO Corps, but they they changed a little bit. I've trained with the Ukrainian Army uh, when I was in the 3rd Infantry Division, uh, ADC. And... um, I think they started then adopting some of the Western countries' organizational thoughts and training tactics, techniques, and procedures. But they were they were surprised by the resistance, and they and they experienced the ill-prepared joint and combined arms 
a fighting structure that could carry uh, the war the way they wanted to, to, to continue to fight it. That's definitely a weakness of the Russian military, and that's going to drive Putin's decision-making on limited objectives, full objectives, diversion to another type of objective, whatever he may do, or something even worse as desperation. On the Ukrainian side, uh, they also have a logistics issue because they really don't have efficient resupply lines of communication open. Everybody sees on the news right now of the of the efforts of all the NATO countries and some that are non-NATO, like Sweden as an example. Uh, they see International Red Cross and everybody else, all this money, all this supplies coming in. And a lot of it's stalled at the border. A lot of it is not being distributed to those in need. Same thing that's going on right now in Afghanistan for different reasons, because the Taliban deliberately controls that and shortchanges its population. But in, in this case in Ukraine, it's because they don't have a Red Ball Express. They don't have a Berlin Air Bridge. I mean, if I was asked my opinion, I'd set up a Berlin Air Bridge immediately. Immediately. That type, that style of support. And I'd announce it through information operations and say, the international community, supported by a UN sanction, even if it's not approved by the Security Committee, is going to, on this day, in this time window, is going to conduct a Berlin airlift type operation on several cities, parachuting in or on the airfields that they can land into Ukraine. Now it's a, that's a it's a gutsy move. I get it. It's dangerous, and it may take private private company pilots to fly it. And I know a bunch of guys that would do it. But right now, Ukraine has about five days left of food proper distribution of food left in their country. Think about that for a minute. People aren't talking about that much in the news. They're saying, yeah, we just did another $10 million to the International Red Cross. We just pledged $80 million for the coffers of, of the Ukraine government. But how do you get it to the people? It's no different than getting ammo and food and fuel to the soldiers. No difference. And right now, the world and as the world leader, the United States of America should do this, figure out how to do it. Because that's key. That's a weakness right now of the Ukraine. Their fighting spirit's wonderful. The other weakness that's out there in Ukraine is the black market. On both sides of the border, Polish side, Ukrainian side. And a lot of the, the support that's supposed to get to the people or to the Ukrainian army is being taken to other locations and sold on the black market. It happens in every conflict, and it's happening today. How much of that have you seen on the news? Very little, but it's definitely a weakness. And, and the other weakness I'd like to mention for a second is in the United States of America. We now have an issue with our support and our statements on the war in Ukraine with inadequate fuel supplies for our, for our citizenry and why the, the prices are so high. We could have a, we're vulnerable to a crisis with distribution of offshoring medicine 
in the United States because of who controls the manufacturing of critical drugs. And it's the same with rare earth elements, which is critical to batteries on drones, to your cell phone you hold in your hand, to your computer, to parts on an F-35 fighter. So that limits our ability to support in a robust way that we may want because we're chained to insecure supply lines of critical needs here in the United States of America, our rear area. All right, so those are some weaknesses I just want to throw out there. And, and so now with this conflict in Ukraine, what, what are our threats? What are the threats? Well, because of what's happening in Afghanistan, which opens the gate, which opened the gates of hell in Central Asia and Southwest Asia, the whole re- region is in turmoil. You have an implosion of what's going to happen inside of Pakistan. Iran is becoming a stronger player because of Afghanistan's condition and other bordering countries. And the, and the stands of Central Asia are also angst in what's happening. So, for instance, there's, there's always been a terrorism threat moving from Afghanistan north, just like it does in, uh, it's happened in Pakistan. But moving north, which makes Russia nervous, and it's enhanced rogue entities. They're empowered by what's happening. And they go after the cracks and seams of the results, the fallouts of what's happening in Afghanistan and what's happening in Ukraine. So ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, others, they are, in fact, now emboldened by these conflicts. So it is a threat to the United States and our allies. There's a growing use of surrogates, like we mentioned on the show earlier, that are deadly and have free reign in many locations. And some of the other nations are emboldened by emboldened by this conflict as well. China and North Korea are good examples. So what we're seeing is, and what some philosophers said a while back, leopards don't change spots, they only change their tactics. And they're adapting their tactics to the world conditions that we see right now. Now, this also provides some opportunities and advantages to the United States and our allies. You can't argue about Western values, and you see that in Ukraine right now. Right now, the spirit of the people is high, and it's maybe mainly because of the moral domain of the president of Ukraine. He's acting like Churchill. He's put passion into the situation, which is a a crisis. And people are picking up their AK-47s and that and joining the fight. And they have rallied a whole nation approach to their fight against the Russians. Everybody's involved. It's like in our days in the United States, the old days where you got a woman handing three musket rifles to the guy shooting on the Paracel against enemy forces. I mean, it's a whole nation approach in Ukraine. And that opportunity is going to, is, has bled over into NATO countries. And NATO is looking at this, this, NATO countries are looking at this strongly because NATO is not what it really was to begin with. And it has this up and downs. I thought it, it did very well in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo as an example. It did with the UN. United Nations could not do. 
But I think this Ukraine, this Ukraine situation has strengthened NATO more than before in the year, recent years. And the economic proudness of the United States, even with some of the shortcomings we're having right now, and Germany and some of the other powerhouses in Western Europe, are going to cause some great, it gives us an advantage and cause some great uh, uh, problems for, for Russia continuing on with this war. So on the moral side of it, Ukraine and its allies have righteousness. In other words, the good side, they have a cause. No one understands the cause. I mean, strategists may comment on it. I may comment on it myself. But really, what's the cause of going in? Why did Putin go in? And even if he has a, a, a defined cause, his people don't understand it, and neither does the rest of the world. And so that trust and loyalty and confidence in the leadership that's that's you see in Ukraine is not the same as you see in Russia. So those non-kinetic items by the moral domain make a difference in this fight. And it's really coming to the forefront. On the organizational side, I get two more comments on this. The resurgence of NATO is key, and a whole nation approach is key. If they go in to help Ukraine with a whole nation, whole of Europe, whole of good guy side effort, government, commercial, nonprofit, and it's organized properly, it'll help win, change the tide of this of this uh, of this war. So everybody understands on, uh, the weaponry, people understand the size of a force, they understand training. But these other things are how you organize for conflict and the moral domain and how you influence people and get people to win like Churchill did in World War II makes a difference. I'll end there and Thank you for joining our show tonight. We appreciate it. We're watching this conflict very closely. I appreciate and thank again our guests and all those veterans out there listening to our show tonight. Thanks, General. That was a great summary of not only the program, but also what companies and individuals can do in support of the war. I would think that the single most important thing for companies and individuals to do is to try to think in terms of being an entrepreneur and look for ways to fill in gaps that develop in what we see, but also to provide those things that are most in need, weapons, training, medical support, humanitarian support for millions of refugees and displaced persons that are fleeing the battle. And then I think also it's important to remember that the Russians are still hampered by mud, and that's going to keep them from achieving mass at any one point, and they may reach their culminating point within a couple of weeks due to a lack of logistics. Also, as General Grange mentioned, Ukraine is about to run out of supplies itself. And then finally, I think that there may be something going on that's really going to hamper the Russian effort. It may hamper the Ukraine effort as well. But I have a feeling that Mr. Putin was told that his capabilities were at a certain level when they really weren't. And because of what General Grange mentioned a moment ago, theft and graft and other things that diverted money that was paid and supplies that were purchased to provision Russia's army have now been sold off. And that's one of the reasons why in that interview, you saw all these people acting as if uh, they were having 
serious trouble listening to Mr. Putin. We'll have to see how things move forward as we uh, watch the clock tick down to the end. Thank you very much for joining us on our fourth program in this series. This is our 19th program, Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, Russia Moves Into Ukraine, and what private companies and private individuals can do to support the effort. Thank you for joining us. This is Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives.